This is Dennis Rundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Rick Hansen. He is an author. He's a psychologist. Uh, he's a PhD in psychology, I should say. Uh, my, his latest book, Neurodharma, subtitled New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show with us today. It's an honor. You all have a classic show, which everyone ought to listen to routinely. So truly, I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you, Rick. And uh, you're in good company with our archive of uh, brilliant people. Um, tell us, to begin with, uh, you uh, something about your own uh, path to the work you do and uh, this interesting intersection uh, that you stand at the uh, uh, cutting edge of between science and uh, the uh, ancient teachings of uh, particularly the East, but the mystical teachings. How'd you come to this? Tell us a bit about your own path. Mm. Well, probably like you both and many other people, I'd always had a feeling that there was a lot of unnecessary suffering and a longing for the deepest truth and the highest happiness. And that kind of set me on my way. Uh, I'm of an age that uh, I came of age in the 60s and 70s and began meditating in 1974, sort of rooted in the human potential movement, but not yet engaging formal clinical psychology. So I did all that in my 20s. And then as I approached my 30s, I thought I needed to get a real job or something like that. So I went back to grad school, trained in clinical psychology, and became a clinical psychologist. So right there, we had these two strands weaving together already, contemplative practice and Western psychology, modern psychology. And then beginning around 30 years ago, really, certainly 20 years ago, as brain science began to explode uh, in terms of what was known about the underlying hardware, I just was really interested in the weaving together of these three strands, uh, deep contemplative wisdom, modern psychology, and emerging neuroscience. And it seemed to me that they offered us two ways to know ourselves, um, let's say from the outside in, objectively through the lens of science, and then subjectively, experientially, from the inside out, through the lens of contemplative practice and psychology. And where those two ways of knowing ourselves meet, uh, I think of as the word neurodharma, made up word, but those are these two ways of knowing ourselves, which I think give us the most opportunities to heal and grow and even awaken. Uh, Rick, I wanted to ask you, I, I was originally in graduate school back in like the early 70s. In, in, uh, that was like the Bronze Age, right? Yeah, that was, was that no, before or after the wheel? I forget. <laughs> and uh, but, uh, anyway, so back then, way back then, as I remember, I was in uh, studying clinical psych in graduate school and I got uh, started meditating. I started TM. Yeah. And at that time, um, the emphasis was on enlightenment and higher states of consciousness and that sort of thing. Then subsequent to practicing meditation and then becoming a teacher of it, uh, the emphasis went to the uh, neurophysiology, uh, psychological, uh, physiological benefits, what was going on internally. I was always much less interested in that than the uh, subjective experience and where it would lead one. Uh, I'm just wondering in your own uh, path, spiritual path, what, what was it that originally attracted you? Was it things you heard about the neurophysiology that were going on from meditation, 
or did that interest come later? Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm a transcendentalist. I, I think with Hamlet, what there are more things than are dreamt of in your philosophies and so forth. So that's true. But alongside that, it had always seemed really obvious to me that our experiences, like those of a cat or a squirrel or who knows, a spider, are natural phenomena fundamentally. And so there must be some ways in which miraculous, amazingly, I'll just say that, as I think Charles Sherrington put it, that the, the brain is like an enchanted loom. It's continually constructing. It's continually conditioning, conditioning and constraining each moment of consciousness, whatever else might possibly be true about the divine. So certainly within the natural frame, um, that enchanted loom is weaving away for better or worse and often for worse. So to me, I always wanted to know what was going down there at the hardware level. And we didn't know enough to really be useful, particularly uh, notwithstanding some of the early studies in the 70s on EEG studies on TM, which were groundbreaking and fantastic. Um, but lately, it's become increasingly clear uh, what the details are. And I guess, to me, it's respectful, respectful to ground mind in life. You know, there's a sort of humility about it, <laughs> rather than the sort of arrogance that says, oh, we're somehow the masters of consciousness without really respecting the ways in which, you know, the nervous system's been evolving for 600 million years, that our hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows, they're really embedded in biology. They're embedded in life. And appreciating that and taking that into account has just always seemed really useful to me, as well as totally interesting. Uh, Rick, now you, you've mentioned the terms like respect and humility, which mm -hmm. leads me to uh, a question. Um, yeah. I uh, I was actually one of Herbert Benson's subjects in his uh, early uh, research yeah. on on TM back in the in 1970 I think and wow. so I I was following some of the progress in meditation research and mindfulness research and it my I used to have the feeling that some of the uh, scientists doing this work were arrogant that they, they would get, find some uh, results in their work and think they knew everything there was about med meditation or, and the traditions that, that it comes from and, yeah. and often took liberties in interpreting what they mm. found. And I, don't, I suspect uh, my, my sense is things are much more sophisticated now uh, uh, for one thing, people are uh, seem to be much more aware that there are different uh, of the the variety of meditative practices, contemplative practices, mm -hmm. and don't lump them all together. What's your sense? Yeah. You've been at this for a while. It, with respect to things like that, uh, how how have things changed over the decades? I think that's very. Excellent point, because there are pitfalls on both sides, right? People yeah. can be, yeah, dogmatic, scientific materialists on the one hand. On the other hand, people who have, let's say, a deep practice of mindfulness of the body, you know, they're very trained uh, in awareness of a, a subtle granularity of experiences, of sensation, really balk at the notion that um, hearing and seeing, wanting and, and hoping are all natural phenomena, right? So I think that what's happened in the field that I've seen is that more and more people who are um, scientists 
in this territory, neuroscientists in this territory, have a personal practice. So that tends to help them mm. be a little more humble, I think, and a little more relaxed about moving back and forth between these two ways of knowing ourselves. Um, I also think that what's becoming clearer and clearer, just overwhelmingly, are the ways in which, and these are things I try to explore in my book in really, really practical ways, the ways in which knowing a little bit about how the underlying processes are occurring um, in the physicality of ourselves, you know, the neuro, the neurology of us helps motivate us minimally, motivates us to practice, which itself is really useful when you appreciate that you're making physical changes in your brain mm, good point. through your practices. Yeah. And then additionally, uh, I think uh, often we find that when we understand from the outside in physically how the machinery is working, it brings us to a, a traditional practice that people have taught thousand of years ago, right? It's not like we're inventing it. And I think it's important to avoid the careerism of slapping old wine in new bottles uh. and acting like you, you know, yeah, exactly. On the other hand, it really helps to prioritize and highlight certain aspects of traditional practice that may have been sort of pushed to the wayside or aren't um, deeply, deeply appreciated. I'll give you one example, if you like. Mm. Trink tranquility. Tranquility, right? We like pay lip service to tranquility, but deep tranquility, highly valued in the traditions. It's increasingly clear that deep tranquility um, calms the machinery, the biological machinery of craving, the neurobiological machinery of craving first. And second, tranquility probably supports that shift based in little switches deep in the thalamus, the sensory switchboard in the brain. Technically, as you know, there are two of them, one on either side. So those switches are regulated by GABA, which is a neurochemical that's very involved with tranquility, with experiences of calming and tranquility. And those switches essentially move us back and forth between an egocentric, self-referential, perceptual framework, right? What's it got to do with me separated from all that is, often beleaguered and put upon by all that is? On the other hand, there's a natural perspective, scientists call it allocentric, that takes things impersonally as they are, as a total gestalt, the suchness of things as they are, without privileging my, in quotes, point of view. And there's a natural movement back and forth between egocentric and allocentric frames of reference. I explore this in my allness chapter, one of the six, one of the seven practices, it's number six, with lots of good references. But the takeaway point is that if we want to help ourselves in our practice, as well as in our dealing with the coronavirus pandemic right now, to appreciate more our interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, our, our, to, to deepen in the felt sense of oneness, ultimately, with all things. Well, it really helps to train in tranquility because mm -hmm. tranquility probably, mm -hmm. plausibly, increases the activity of GABA in these little switches that help us rest increasingly in that allocentric frame rather than taking life oh so personally. Mm -hmm. But Rick, I wanted Isn't to Isn't that cool? Yes, very good. I just think like, yeah. Yeah, here's my question though. Yeah. Uh, we've had other people come on and discuss uh, neurophysiology of evolving or changing consciousness, mm -hmm. states of consciousness, that sort of thing. And I uh, even had uh, Deepak Chopra on, mm -hmm. and he was very strong in his belief. <clears throat> I consider it a belief because I've seen no evidence 
that uh, consciousness exists uh, without uh, a neurophysiology, without a physical brain. And, and uh, it, it's a, I guess it doesn't matter once they'll benefit from these practices, whether one believes that or not. And I just was curious what uh, your feeling was about it and, and addressing my issue that I've, I see it as a belief because I've seen no evidence uh, yeah. and I don't know how I could gain evidence uh, <laughs> other than you know, the, the ultimate way uh, of, of yeah. answering that question. Right. <laughs> what what well, is your thought on that? I think that uh, I don't know Deepak Chopra, uh, but I do understand that the view he's representing is a classic theistic view. It's a classic view that there is a transcendental that is meaningfully distinct uh, and therefore worthy of its own word, meaningfully distinct from the ordinary Big Bang universe, which of course contains a lot of wild stuff. All right. So there's, it's a standard view that God is conscious, that there is God, that it has certain qualities. So we might use other words for it. I prefer transcendental because it's not so freighted with connotations as God. But to me, Deepak is, uh, if I can use his first name, as he often does, uh, you know, that he is just simply pointing to a standard view. Now, many people, including people I respect enormously, such as Stephen Batchelor, Lee Brasington, and others, are very secular. They balk entirely at transcendentalism of any kind, in part because of the historical issues with religion, etc. Um, and I get that, you know, and, and as I think you correctly say, there is no how would you prove within the Big Bang universe that there is something beyond the Big Bang universe? I mean, I think that is a really difficult thing to do. On the other hand, in, in my own view, um, and I'm really comfortable with people resting in an atheist uh, stance or an agnostic one that says, we don't know and it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, while, in, in my own personal opinion, uh, the Buddha, in his own uh, references uh, that were at, involved in his own ultimate awakening uh, in nirvana or the unconditioned, the deathless, not subject to arising and passing away, um, that I, I think uh, it's hard to read those passages and not think that he was specifically pointing to something transcendental. Now, he might have been wrong. So we're left with, as he recommended in Pali, ehi pasiko, see for yourself. Okay, we see for ourselves. And you may see for yourself and think, nah, you know, as Andy Olensky said to me once, he's a secular Buddhist teacher. He said, you know, basically everything arises due to causes and it passes away. And when we're dead, we're dead and deal with it. <laughs> okay, that's a view. And that's a belief too, by the way. Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, as a very scientific stance has it, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And to think that it is, is a category error. So then there are folks like myself who, no matter whatever the Buddha has said or or great teachers throughout history, Ramana Maharshi, you know, Jesus, uh, Muhammad, others who point to a transcendental, they use different ways of talking about it, um, different faith traditions, you know, independent of whatever they all say, me, Honestly, me, it's my, ex I'll call it experience, which I know um, could be diluted, but it's my experience and my view that there really is a meaningfully distinct transcendental something or other whose minimal attribute is unconditionality, a kind of field of timelessness that isn't subject to arising and passing away. 
in which, as which, you know, an Avedanta view woven together with which the ordinary Big Bang universe unfolds. And I don't offer that view as preaching. You know, it's kind of buried in the seventh practice of finding timelessness in my book. And I try to approach it in a very respectful way. But I think one way to understand our practices inside the natural frame um, with synapses and hormones and gushy neurochemicals and three pounds of <laughs> tofu-like tissue inside our skull, you know, that we understand those practices, at least I do, as in effect clearing away the crud on the stained glass windows of our mind uh, so that the light that was always already there can shine through. Well, I, I want to add, uh, Phil, excellent, honest answer. Uh, so often, when you ask that question, people just bang at you with their belief. Yeah. And whereas I think you you let us know what your belief is, but also uh, in such a way it was very comprehensive. Thank you. And well, so, Rick, uh, I was listening in. Uh, that that's the answer that I I uh, appreciate most. I I oh, I have very similar uh, point of view as Rick on this, and have come to a similar conclusion based on my experience. So we win. <laughs> that, and is this not a topic that people, <laughs> otherwise really calm Buddhist types or other spiritual <laughs> practitioners, really argue about? And obviously, you right. see that argument played out in our in our culture as well between you know dogmatic religionists and dogmatic atheists yeah. banging on each other. Right. But yeah. I think one of the the beautiful things about the uh, the uh, era we're in, where we have this access beginning. Uh, especially since the 60s, uh, access yeah. to these teachings that were born and evolved in India is um, that they can be equally ac applicable to people with a spiritual or religious perspective and to people who are uh, secular and yeah. uh, scientific in orientation. And with that in mind, I want to ask another question. Uh, much of what you study and, and the scientists have been studying, much of what we talk about here on the show um, is, uh, has to do with the secularization, the adaptation of these ancient Eastern teachings mm -hmm. to our Western way of life. And in many instances, uh, a secularization. So a lot of what uh, is now being taught as mindfulness and various forms of meditation are stripped of the uh, artifacts of mm -hmm. the cultures they come from. Uh -huh. Is there a danger in that? Mm -hmm. Is there, uh, I mean, obviously there's an advantage that these practices reach more people. Is there mm -hmm. a danger that they become diluted or distorted in the process? What have you seen in your research? I won't call it research so much as just my observation, because you're right. I've been very involved in this world in my adulthood, uh, and a couple of things. One is, uh, I think that generally speaking, and I people who I respect, uh, who really stand squarely in the Buddhist tradition, which is the one I, I really am trained in, particularly in terms of contemplative practice, people like Joseph Goldstein, I've really asked him a very similar question. In his answer, as I understand it, is, is essentially my own, which is it's fine to extract something such as mindfulness and use it in ways that reduce human suffering and support human happiness and welfare and flourishing. That's okay as long as, number one, you don't claim that it's the whole of Very the tradition. Right. Much as, right. yeah, right. We, we could say I don't have to be a Christian 
to uh, in a in in a meaningful sense to appreciate the value of the teaching to love one's neighbor as oneself mm-hmm. right and then we can ask our that's point one point two uh, uh, I'd add myself uh, the classic question kue bene who benefits to what end and then I think that it's important to appreciate that mindfulness as the Buddha taught and as I understand it is morally neutral people a burglar can be extremely mindful as let's say he creeps about inside a home right just because we're mindful mm-hmm. doesn't mean inherently that we're compassionate or virtuous or wise and that's why it's really important to make sure that in our mindfulness trainings with people we include the moral component yeah. right uh, yeah exactly uh, one way to think of it to me is the naturalist fallacy that there's a inherent movement from is to ought no mindfulness teaches us what is what is in our experience and what is out there in the world, but we must add ought. We must add our moral values saturated perspective about what is good. You know, as I said to my kid once, good is better than bad, and I'm your dad. (laughs) 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 Uh, Rick, I wanted to ask, um, you have uh, people studying the neurophysiology of the brain and what goes on during different practices. whether it's mindfulness or TM or uh, whatever other kind of meditation or spiritual practice or uh, uh, or or, uh, a a, a non-spiritual, non-spiritual practice, but one uh, like mind control or whatever that's trying to do different things in a neurophysiology. Uh, Are there scientists, are there people in neurophysiology that are becoming very familiar with this and saying, you know, if we use this mantra, if we do this technique, if we do this, these are the different uh, uh, neurophysiological responses, and perhaps we should mix and match or combine. Is anything like that taking place? And if so, is there anything wrong with that, or is there any danger uh, uh, that would be associated with that? Really interesting. So um, my observation of all this is that, first of all, the neuroscientists are ahead of the practitioners now. You go back to Freud 100 years ago, say, the theoreticians, you know, the and the therapists like Freud, they were ahead of the biologists at the time in terms of new possibilities. These days, neuroscientists, I mean, I'm reading studies from time to time on the nervous system of fruit flies, and suddenly I'll read something that'll make me immediately think, whoa, how is that occurring or something like that? in a more complex way, occurring inside my own experience, inside my own mind, which then helps me sort of improve my vipassana, you know, my insight, my mindfulness into my own experiences. Like, they're ahead of us. So um, I think, actually, there is indeed emerging research. It's messy. It's hard to do. It's a baby science. Okay, stipulating all that. But if we have to know everything about a subject before we say anything about it, we'll never say anything at all, right? And you've got these peop- these naysayers and doubters who are making their careers by always saying, well, there ought to be more research. Well, sure, they always ought to be more research, but we also have to have the courage to stick our necks out, especially if the risks are low. You know, if we're talking about a coronavirus vaccine where the stakes are, are mortal, yeah, we really need a high level of evidence for the safety and efficacy of something. But if we're talking about suggesting, let's say, that someone bring more of an element of tranquility deliberately 
into whatever kind of practices they do, you know, and the risk is that they won't feel very tranquil or they'll get a little frustrated by it, or maybe they'll start feeling so tranquil that they'll fall asleep <laughs> at work. Uh, you know, okay, those are pretty low risks, really. So why not give it a whirl? So yeah, there are uh, new studies that are starting to differentiate uh, the, the effects in terms of people's experiences and the structural residues uh, and the functional residues left behind in the brain based on different um, practices. But I honestly don't see very much application of that. And that's where I come in, I guess, because I'm a, you know, I'm an explorer and I'm a methods guy. I'm really interested in practice, deeply interested in the how of practice. And so, you know, that is it's something that I really have pushed forward, including in this book. How do we actually pull together what is plausible in terms of West, in terms of modern science, I won't say Western science anymore, I'll just say modern science, what is plausible that we can actually use, you know, mm -hmm. so part one, part two, where also it's getting very interesting is in neurofeedback. Uh, I think that 10 years from now, if not certainly 20 years from now, a standard class in clinical training uh, will be and in, will involve neurofeedback. And that is a genuinely new approach. It's the Wild West, right? You want to be a little careful about that stuff. But I think we're seeing things like that um, starting to emerge. But on the whole, I, I think it's curious. You know, I, I know a number of these people uh, personally uh, who do this research and it's fantastic research. It's really hard to do. Uh, MRI, stu MRI studies on different forms of meditation. You, you start getting confounds because how can you meditate when you're in the tube and it's loud and you're cosmic, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, going to cosmic consciousness. Yeah, right. Uh, and still, I, when I talk with them, I find a curious gap between what they're learning about the hardware and what they're engaging in, in their own personal practice with the software. And I think that's a missed opportunity and you're pointing to it here. Very good. Rick, um, speaking of uh, practice, your uh, new book, Neurodharma, uh, features uh, seven types of practice. Or yeah. um, can, Do you wanna quickly uh, give us an overview of those seven and what yeah. they? Yeah. Um, if we want to, I, I, for me, it's kind of simple. You know, if you want to get better at something, watch someone who's good at it, you know, and try to learn from them in a, in a sense, channel them. So I would do this with rock climbing and watch people who are better. Oh, how do they do it? I remember landing in college and um, I was very young and uh, extremely shy and awkward and neurotic and self preoccupied. And somehow uh, I had the courage to run for president of my dormitory with 800 people. I'd never done anything in wow. student government. I'd always been an outsider. Uh, I was 16 when I went to UCLA and I won. So here I am, I'm 17 years old and they give me this old woman, you know, as a dean, she was an assistant dean for my dorm. I think she was 24, she was ancient. And <laughs> I would watch her, you know, yeah, Carol Hetrick bless her, one of my primary early teachers, actually, I would watch her in meetings and she would just intuitively do things that would help the meeting go well, that it would take me, you know, with my intellect, whatever, five minutes to figure out what she was doing and why it worked. But by then the meeting had moved on five minutes further. So in the same way, why not study 
the great teachers, the sages, the saints, the famous ones, and the not so well-known ones, and reverse engineer what it's like to be them. You know, what's going on when you really awaken, when you're approaching enlightenment or are resting in there, right? To the extent that that matters. And for me, I think we find in them seven qualities. We may find more, but these seven qualities really seem to summarize it. We find steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, equanimous contentment, fullness, I call that, with a sense of being whole, uh, accepting themselves fully. They seem completely integrated. They're not divided internally. Nothing is pushed away or left out while receiving nowness, resting continuously and being here now in nowness with a sense of connection, a sense of uh, opening out into allness with an intuition, if not a very felt sense, a radiant sense perhaps of resting in timelessness somehow, being connected somehow to mystery in the infinite. Well, those are those seven qualities, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. And so what the book's about is using modern science in extremely practical, experiential ways, it's saturated with practices, to live our way into those ways of being, to gradually cultivate greater steadiness of mind, greater warmth of heart, you know, greater sense of being one with everything, to actually cultivate that over time. Um, so. You know, that's what the book's about. It's these ways of being, which seem to me so central. And they're good, as the Buddha said, they're good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. They're incredibly useful in the slog and trenches and upset of everyday life to have some greater steadiness of mind or greater compassion and self-compassion or more respect. We started there with humility, more respect for our interdependent being and the importance of the common good, right? That's really useful in the, in the crud. <laughs> it's also really useful as we move through healing, through self-actualizing, and into what interests me at this um, late stage of my own life, you know, the upper reaches of human potential. So that's what it's about. The name of the book again for our listeners, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of Highest Happiness, Rick Jones. Rick Hansen, uh, PhD, uh, now available. Uh, any final uh, uh, questions or points, Phil? Um, just one, Rick. We're recording this on uh, May 7th, mm -hmm. uh, which happens to be... 2020. Yes, at 2020. And it happens to be the full moon day uh, that in uh, mm -hmm. India they celebrate Buddha's birthday. and. Yeah. And so How auspicious. Uh, it's very auspicious. It won't be posted yet, but your book just came out. Um, and so this will be out. And we're in the middle of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. People might be listening to this for the first time two years from now, and uh, it'll be long gone. But for the people listening, while it's still uh, forefront in everybody's mind and disturbing our lives in so many ways. Give us, if you would, a quick, uh, uh, some advice for people listening now. What would you say from your perspective? Mm -hmm. Beautiful question. Well, um, for me, that it really boils down to three things. Uh, find your footing, 
In other words, when things are falling apart, when, when, when they're turbulent, when there's a lot of rapid change, whether you're in the wilderness on a knife edge ridge in a whiteout or dealing right now, find your footing, stabilize, and then you launch from there. You know, establish a kind of secure base of some kind, to use that term from developmental psychology. Second, calm and center. There's no replacement for calming and center. A little bit of tranquility there exhaling, centering, tuning in to your own moxie. There's no replacement for moxie, for grit, fortitude, determination. I, I think of myself a little bit like a cockroach. I believe in the cockroach theory of life. Keep crawling, <laughs> keep going, <laughs> right? Even like Frodo and Sam up the slopes of Mount Doom, keep going, you know? Now, and, when the light, and when the lights come on, scurry. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's great to the edges where you and where you can only be attacked from one direction. Anyway, and then last, third, tend and befriend. That's the phrase from mm. Shelley Taylor's work at UCLA on ways to relate to stress without getting hijacked by fighting, fleeing, or freezing. Tending and befriending, you know, take good care of each other. Um, you know, I think of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, right? You know, be excellent to each other and party on in a sense. So we tend and be friends, certainly in the be excellent to each other. And that's so important as well, including in addition to the ways it helps others, uh, the ways it's calming for us to tend to be friend, the ways that it opens and strengthens the heart to tend to be friend. So those are the three headlines for me. Very good. Thank, Thank you, you Rick. so much. Total Thanks. pleasure. Your show rocks. Thank you, sir. Um, thank you again for being with us. Again, the book is Neurodharma, and you'll find uh, links uh, to all Rick's website and the book on, on the page that this is posted on. Thanks once again. Keep up the good work and stay in touch with us. Oh, definitely. Thank, thank you. you, Rick.